Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, a podcast dedicated to the region's high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their insights, advice, and experiences on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner at True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, and technical experts. This week, in a special international collaborative episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders, we welcome Joydeep Sarkar, the Chief Analytics Officer of the Singapore and US headquartered mental health research and technology company, Holmask. Joydeep brings his wealth of experience in analytics in healthcare to share with us insights on the groundbreaking advances that Holmust are making in this field. We discuss how research coupled with the latest technology and data availability is bringing to light new understanding of mental health. We also discuss the incredibly exciting future of healthcare and how the use of technologies such as NLP and computer vision will revolutionize the industry. In this special edition, I'm equally delighted to welcome true partner and co-lead of the healthcare practice, Jacob Sack, who joins the show as co-host. Hi, this is Jacob Sack. I'm a partner at True and co-lead our global healthcare practice. Jody, um, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Um, how have you been keeping? How has, how, how has life been in, in, in lockdown for you? Um, you know, I mean, it's getting closer to normal. Can't complain uh, when you can wear a mask, but to go out and know that the chances of infection are near to nothing. So you feel relieved being outside and that gives you, I think uh, that takes away all that uh, stress and unknown aspects of it. So yeah, and now we are coming to work most days. It yeah. feels like normal, it's a lot more like normal. And, and how has how's the business generally been coping with COVID? Has it been, been sort of uh, generally okay or? Um, yeah, I mean, there have been some slowdowns just because of the fact that, you know, we work with a lot of providers and can't really blame them. They have um, a lot of patients to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think those aspects are there, but generally not that, not that affected, I would say. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my life has been as busy as ever. Okay, okay. And so you, you haven't had any uh, spare time to pick up any new hobbies or learn any new languages or, or anything like that? Spare time? No, no, none, no. Okay. I work at a startup and it's been a good startup life. Yeah, okay, okay, excellent. Um, so the, what, what I'd like to start with on, on, on the show is um, perhaps a little bit of a background on, on yourself and then um, obviously onto the, you know, onto to Holmask in, in general. But perhaps, perhaps you, could, you could give us a little route through to your, your current position, you know, sort of um, how, how you started out, what, what brought you to this sector and, and yeah, really your journey, your journey to date. I mean, sector, I have, you know, I've, I've never worked in anything other than healthcare. So I've had that's... Um... I, I don't know why I started off in high school absolutely loathing biology and then somehow <laughs> somewhere around college decided that uh, regular engineering was not uh, hard enough, challenging enough, and uh, switched and uh, fell in love and have never thought 
to change. So I've, you know, I've worked in biology and healthcare since 2000, so more than two decades now. Uh, so, so that is not a question. I mean, specifically Hall Musk, I think uh, about 2016 is when I started thinking about coming back to this part of the world just because my family's around. And I started looking at opportunities at a place where I did not have to learn another language to just live. Uh, and Singapore, where I had a couple of friends, looked like an incredible place with uh, a quality of life uh, better than mine in DC. So, um, so I was like, this sounds interesting. And I somehow, through some friends, got connected to Hall Musk uh, and uh, a few, uh, and I met the management team that existed then. Uh, a few of the data scientists were, were there, and it felt like this could this was a team that I could see myself working with, um, and I took a chance. And I, I can attest to the uh, once you've gone east, it's very difficult to <laughs> it's very difficult to go back. Um, this is now back for me. But I'm uh, interested to um, just explore a little bit. You sort of said the reg regular engineering wasn't necessarily sort of so hard enough. What was it about the 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 biology and that that sort of part of of the that sort of statistical analysis and things that were that created such an interesting problem for you? I think it's. Uh... You know, there's the whole, it's like when you uh, talk about space and research around the universe and everything, you, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Biology is equally like that. The more we learn, the more we actually learn how little we actually know. And so to then look to first investigate such a space is always challenging because there's so many unknowns and how do you deal with that? But also then thinking about it from the perspective that how do you then use the data that you have in hand to make the next decision, to make the next design of whatever it is that you want to do is a different type of problem. So how do you deal with that? So knowing that a large majority of things is actually unknown and I still have to deal with that. Uh, as Nawal would say that in the world of startups, you have to get used to making decisions every day with uh, knowing that you don't know a lot of things. So it's, it's somewhat similar in some ways that you get used to knowing. It's okay. Let's, let's go with it. It's a different was, kind of training, if you could say. Mm, okay. It's so it's, a, uh, yeah, it's, that's fascinating. And was there a, um, was there a particular aha moment where it dawned upon you that this was an area that you really wanted to get into, or was it like a gradual, gradual discovery? And, I'd and say sort it of... was a gradual discovery. I I, um, I had some scholarships in college that allowed me to go around the country and visit a lot of labs and the kind of work that was going on in different engineering as well as biology labs, and it just it fascinated me a lot more of where things are going. It was a lot more fascinating than, I mean, you know, I got to see satellites, I got to see uh, the latest aircrafts, and then I got to see labs and somehow um, labs, wet lab uh, in biology somehow came across as way more interesting at that age. Um, and it, it can be, it can be also extremely demoralizing because nothing ever works. Um, um, but, but there is there is some but that that's research pretty much anywhere yeah. you go so i think it was yeah. really fascinating to me uh, and the aspect of helping people i think drives mm. me a lot yeah. uh, and i think that has become a very core part of 
what drives me, keeps me going every day. Yeah, and I think that was one of the questions I was going to ask is, you know, with um, with the sort of biology side and with those sort of uh, sort of health and life sciences and medicine, you can you can see a, a tangible benefit to, to, to people. It might take it might take five years of, <laughs> of research, but there is a, there is an outcome which has a tangible benefit. So was that something that, that resonated with you? Always, always. I think today more than anything else, you know, I mean, you're different when you're in your 20s, you're different when you're in your 30s and you're different when I'm 43. So I think today it is the uh, it is the opportunity within close reach to make a real large impact on people's lives at a, at, a, at a large scale. I think that's what keeps us going in a very, very positive way every day, even in the midst of COVID. I guess let's let's move on to, to, to Holmask a little bit. Obviously, you mentioned that you um, it was seemed like a really good fit um, back in 2016 when you got to meet the guys. Um, what was the... What does the company do, and, and perhaps how has the how has the the mission grown across the last sort of four years? Has, has it remained pretty steady state? Perhaps you can talk us through the, the sort of the, the journey of the company from then. I think um, you know um, some of that has to do with the way I'd say Nawal as a CEO thinks. So he's a somewhat uh, he is a Wall Street guy. He used to be a trader. So you see that um, in some ways that 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 mindset still is like being able to look at something and make directional bets. So I think when he wanted to get into healthcare, he made a directional bet that uh, he had access to a unique asset, which was the mining data set coming out of Duke University. And someday, uh, there could be a lot of value to what he was getting access to. So he made a directional bet on that. He didn't know, uh, honestly, how and what would make of it and what is the true value, but he could see the potential. And then while we were, while he was waiting on really all of this to play out, he came in contact with uh, Tang, who's the chief of digital therapeutics, and then a few other members of the company. And at that point, um, uh, Singapore had declared the whole idea of uh, a war on diabetes. And so while waiting for Duke to come around and take 18 months to close the deal, uh, they besides started their own digital therapeutics business in Singapore focused on really uh, touching people's lives in a positive way and helping them solve uh, the challenges that they face, uh, specifically in the management of obesity and diabetes. They, he did hire, he ended up hiring, he always wanted to have a data business and he had hired a few people to come in, but he was still looking for somebody to really come in who could kind of take that, that journey of the, of, of the vision of what he had. Uh, I remember the day I accepted the offer, the next day he sent me a 65 page document um, about MindLink 2.0, and I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> uh, but then I read through it, and this is pre, uh, this predates the day that, the days when uh, Flatiron Health was big. Uh, they were growing, people were talking about it, and I knew about them. Uh, even while I was working in healthcare in the US, I'd come across their name, people were asking, can you do something like it in diabetes? Why don't you do something like in this disease? Um, and then I saw that, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. But 
but I think starting there and where we are, you know, we have come a long way. And that's, I would say, in many ways, thankfully, that is expected that we have come a long way. And our, both in terms of the uh, how much our vision has brought, broadened, but at the same time become more concrete, if that makes any sense. Uh, so it sounds like in the early days it was it was more looking at um, sort of information around diabetes as a as a disease. Yeah, I mean we started off with that because it was an opportunity that was there, and because there was so much focus and there was money in Singapore to start that business. Uh, I think uh, the mind link at the data business kind of took off after I joined because I could actually kind of coalesce people around me and work with yeah. Nawal to understand what the hell did he actually want to do. Um, and, and it took me a while because mental health is uniquely very different than every other part of healthcare. Uh, you know, I've worked over, uh, since 2006 to 2016, 10 years, right? I had worked in the industry and I worked in oncology, chronic immune disease, acute immune disease, cardiovascular disease, you know, metabolic diseases, and then you come into mental health and you realize you don't know anything. And you're like, how's that even possible? What, what, what is measured? Nothing. How's that even humanly possible? How, how do I know? How do you make diagnosis? No biomarkers. There's no test. So it's a very different way. It's so observational. Yeah. Um, that you start figuring out, okay, okay, all right, new way of approaching. Uh, we got we, we can't approach it the traditional way. We got to think of other ways that might work. So, so it took us a while to really dig into and understand above everything else, what matters, what clinicians care about, what patients care about, what is captured. Honestly, I think that is what took us. What exactly is captured? What is practice? Um, and where inside the EHR are different pieces stored in nuggets spread across and EHR tables. If you ever look at the tables of an EHR, you're looking at, I don't know, 200 different tables, each with God knows how many fields, right? So you got to know where to look for information. And there's a couple of interesting questions from that. I guess, you know, if we look at, um sort of the, the testing and measurement of, of treatment in sort of traditional physical illness. Um, you know, it's it can be quite relatively straightforward. You have a double-blinded randomized control trial, you give a, a treatment and a placebo, and then you measure a, a sort of statistical difference if there is a significant difference between between the two. Um, how, no, that is there. That is there in mental health yeah. too. How do you actually go about um, identifying what the outcomes are and how the outcomes are measured and I, I can imagine in a in an area which doesn't have these sort of very you know necessarily very obvious sort of biomarkers how um what what did you do to to establish a, a baseline or to establish what what good looks like what bad looks like what good yeah. outcomes look like so so uh, here in comes um the fact that um the world's directional bet paid off uh, is the way to say it. It took me a while and part of it was also me learning from our clients who wanted to work with us what they found special about what we had. Uh, so it was not always me knowing, honestly. It's about me learning from the other people 
who were the experts working in that field for many years. Uh, and what we learned was that, um, you know, I mean, there are many other databases um, out there with 10 times the number of patients that we had. And it all, I always wondered why did they still want to work with us? And what I realized was that um, when this database was curated, uh, the, psych the Dr. Ranga Krishnan, who was then the head of psychiatry at Duke, had this, I don't know, incredible vision that, um, that what we needed to do was make sure that the EHR had a field for a single scale for all patients, mandatory. And mandatory is the most important piece of the work. Because if you actually look at it, we support but 200 different scales. And that tells you how diverse and how um, inconsistent is the data capture across the healthcare space when it comes to psychiatry and sporadic also. And then you come and you see, look at our EHR and you say, oh, wow, 90% uh, of the time when the doctor saw a patient, there is a single consistent way of measuring how this patient is doing over time across patients. Whoa, that changes everything. Now we talk about that. But honestly, I don't think in 2017, sitting in 2017, we could have fully uh, understand the value of that one thing. I mean, over the three years, um, it has allowed us to do a lot more things, mostly because that thing existed. And now we can, that, has, that has allowed us to develop capabilities that allows us to translate pieces of data from other EHRs that don't have that only because we had this. So there are these, you could say, the, the benefits of this are still coming. And I'm sure there is more that we haven't fully realized because we haven't had the, nobody has challenged us on that problem. So we haven't looked at that in a, that particular problem and we haven't realized the value of the data for that problem as well. So it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of a process of discovery that we are going through. And as we are recognizing the value of what we are doing, we then see the value of the tools we can build based on this data set that we can then translate to other places and how everything that we do from this point on grows in value because of this data set that we have. It's, I'm, I'm still reflecting on your point that the more, you know, you learn, you realize how little you actually know. And on the one hand, it's a, it's a remarkably refreshing statement because there's a ton of humility and there's also a ton of awareness that's just lacking. But it sounds like you've now moved to a next meaningful plateau almost in, in the business. And yet you're still sort of driven and guided by lots of question asking and uncertainty and sort that of is the problem way. orientation. I mean, to a large degree, and I say this, honestly, not just to you guys, I say this weekly basis to the team that to a certain degree for a company like ours, which is trying to do something different and not run off the mill, our bread and butter is R&D. That's it. There's no other way. We got to innovate and we got to do things that others aren't doing. 
we got to do things in a way that is significantly improved as compared to what others are doing. Otherwise, we don't have the audacity to survive. As simple as that. I have two questions on on that data set and and, and the scale you mentioned. So the, this, the, the single scale that was used, is that a, a measurement of treatment success or a measurement of sort of severity of symptoms? A, a measurement of severity of the patient. Mm -hmm. So okay, okay. the moment you do that, that, that then you can actually assess how that measurement is changing over time as you treat. Now, it's a completely different question that in the real world, on whenever you're looking at individual patients and not groups, not populations, mm. you realize that this idea that, oh, you know, I'll give you an example. For somebody who has not worked in mental health, you know, you come in with some preconceived notions. And what are the preconceived notions? Well, you know, and because, you know, you have seen people closely who have taken antidepressants and you read about it and, you know, being in U.S., you, you get bombarded with the ads for every medication, right? Um, I'm used to, I mean, it's called happy pills for all practical purposes. And what everyone tells you is that, well, you know, you get on a medication, you wait for about four to six weeks and you see how you're doing and depending upon that you decide. Well, that's not how it actually gets practiced, especially not in psychiatry care. Uh, if you look at it, it's all over the place. It could be that it's changed after two weeks. It could be that you're not doing well, but you're on the same drug for a year. I mean, you can see two ends of the spectrum where you're a patient who keeps going back to the hospital, needing hospitalization, and you have been, they have tried 13 drugs over two years, sometimes up to four drugs at a time. And you also see patients who are really not doing well, and they keep getting the same treatment, the same drug, the same dose, nothing gets changed. And you see the disparity between the two, and you realize that simple ways of approaching this kind of data, that, oh, I'm going to measure this, and I'm going to measure it four weeks, and that's going to be the answer. All of those go out of the window. So in taking that one scale and measuring sort of, I guess, sort of treatment outcomes and, and sort of the, the progression of individuals' sort of pathologies and sort of plotting that, have you then been able to transpose the, the findings from that and sort of cross-reference them against other treatment modalities so that the, um, so that your, your sort of results and your findings and your, your sort of uh, solution can be, can be sort of placed onto other, on, onto other scales? A lot of our focus is on different types of pharmaceuticals combined with uh, certain types of therapy, although therapy today, if you look at it, isn't really captured as well, but you have some idea. I would say the thing that we do capture and are able to translate that there is a lot of focus and there's a growing focus on is really social determinants uh, in a sense of what's really going on in your kind of work and living atmosphere and how that impacts everything that goes on. We have been able to take that into account. And it's, it's somewhat interesting that in many ways, you could look at it that, that there are people whose lives are actually quite messy and the worse they do, it gets harder for them to just sustain 
And all the drugs are trying to do is in some ways give them the resilience to be able to persevere. And if you don't have that, that's when you see them getting really, really worse. And so it, it, often enough, we see outcomes of these patients are really not function so much about their medications, but what's really going on in their lives. You know, in mental health, I know there are a lot of treatments outside of purely medication. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of interactions, uh, sort of changing behaviors and things like that. Uh, it, it sounds like that's something that you also capture. Is that something you can also sort of track the, the, the effectiveness of, of interventions? Really. Or, you know, okay. I mean, we try, but I would say that today, to yeah. date, uh, how that's captured or how well that's captured, uh, there's, a, there's a real gap there. Um, and that's one of the things that we hope to be able to fix in the coming years. Uh, it's a classic problem that psychiatrists will, let's say, prescribe you to say you need therapy. Um, and they might say that I think this patient needs CBT. But once they go, and they go to, let's say, a psychologist or a therapist, and even if they're going through CBT, there's, there's no connection anymore. There's no feedback loop to say, well, this is what we tried, and this is what the assessment, and this is what we saw, and this is how it's getting better or not getting better, responding, not responding. There's no back and forth, completely disconnected. They don't even know if the patient is taking it or not because it's almost of the time in a different facility, so it's not in the same database. It's a nightmare. It, this might be more of a US-centric question, but if you're, if you're listening to this and you think, could, could what you just described be a reason that health insurance companies typically don't cover mental health treatment? Is, is there some, is there actually some backwards logic that, you know, it's, it's hard to attribute, you know, intervention and outcome. And actually, you know, we've, we've punted on that and said, we're, we're not going to cover it. Or is that just, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of that definitely, but, uh, but you have to look at it also from the perspective. I mean, you know, I mean, most plans would cover your everyday antidepressants. They're cheap. You know, they're like a dollar a day. Who cares, right? I mean, that, that's that's as, as cheap as getting a statin, or maybe even cheaper. So they cover that. And But the question is then, there is a perception that people go for, I mean, there's a perception problem of, um, of the need and the severity and whether what is the, uh, the outcome. Uh, we sometimes don't, unless you are really, really severely depressed, we don't think that mental health is as big of a problem. Um, I was talking to somebody, I'm trying to remember who, this week, and they said that often enough mental health patients get kind of shortchanged to a certain degree. Um, and part of our journey as a company is not only kind of generating the data and producing the evidence, but what is the evidence, right? The evidence of what? Um, and as we are growing and as our ambitions are growing, I think we also know that the, the future that we have, the future is where we are able to really connect the dots between the effects of your mental well-being and your mental health on pretty much 
everything else that's going on in your life, whether that's your productivity, your work, but also your social state, your ability to have you know, meaningful relationships. Um, and at the end of the day, also how all of this affects your own physical health. So there are, there are many publications even today that will say and that will show the effect of managing mental health and how that affects your physical health. But it has never made it to prime time. And so part of our goal is to show over time the broader effect of mental health on everything. And we truly believe that if we can go there properly, then if we bring it to the surface in an unbiased way, now I don't really have a vested interest in saying mental health is really big because that doesn't help me necessarily. Um, I think I think the the industry will turn around a little bit more. Um, it's it's more like shining the right amount of light on the right kind of data, and then people will start caring and somewhat of an awareness campaign behind it as well. Could you talk us through uh, specifically the sort of product solutions or research or, or the, the specific things you guys are doing in this space? I know we talked a lot about the, the data that we're looking at and the sort of the outcomes we're measuring, but can you talk us through what you've, you know, fundamentally what you've built and then perhaps how it's going to change this, um, this perception? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, part of the problem uh, if you go to a regular center, is how mental health is practiced and how mental health is, um, or behavioral health in a more general way is practiced is, you know, you go see doctors, doctors try and understand how you're doing. They try and record that, you know, not necessarily always as consistently as in terms of what did I ask last time? They kind of gloss over their notes from last time and they try to go over and capture that, but it's obviously not facilitated by anything. They're doing it completely on their own. And then the question comes, is the patient really doing better? There's no way to really measure if the patient is actually doing better. And I think uh, we're very close to having the technology to be able to take those notes, basically profile the symptoms of the patient and really be able to say that, well, is the patient doing better? Let's find a number behind it and say, what does the patient look like? Um, to take that to prime time where it gets used uh, is a lengthy process only because healthcare being healthcare, everything that we do has to be tested rigorously enough number of times under sufficiently difficult conditions to see that it does translate and it holds. We're going through that process, if you could say. Uh, but the, it's not that far that we can take, we can go into a very, very large health system and basically scan all their notes that they have collected and basically be able to produce a number for that patient at every time and then be able to say, now let's look at what works and what doesn't. Do, do you think that the, I guess the gulf in, in sort of empirical data between sort of 
treatment modalities in, in sort of mental health versus physical health. Do you think that's, you know, a, a lot of, obviously when you do a medicine degree and when you become a doctor, you know, everything is evidence-based. Everything has to be research-backed. Um, and do you think that the, the, that sort of, the sort of gulf between all of the empirical evidence that's based on physical medicine versus the, the sort of lack of that evidence in, in sort of mental health, do you think that is fu fundamentally a problem for, for, for some practitioners to, you know, they can't necessarily measure their outcomes as well. And so they... Um, yes and no. There is also the question that the traditional training doesn't even involve measurement-based care in, in psychiatry. Um, so the training is also different. The training of the new doctors are slightly different. Depends on where you go and the faculty there, how much of an emphasis on measurement-based care was done, also didn't which way you are in terms of that. Uh, but, but at the same time, most psychiatrists would, would I, I think there are very few psychiatrists which would say that I don't want to measure. <laughs> they would not say that. I think um, if you say that let's replace um, what you do with the measure, I think they may not like that because I feel they, they also feel the need for the engagement with that patient. And I think absolutely that's needed. That conversation is very important. But we can find ways to still measure things that doesn't disrupt that. And I think that's what I'm trying to do is really, um, I think the many years of working with clinicians, uh, you know, you, you, you enter as a data scientist slash engineer and you're all about data and you have this perception often that, what the hell, man? I mean, come on, measure the damn thing, do it this way. Uh, it, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and then there is a period of awareness or self-education, if you could say, of what really goes on and the constraints within which most clinicians have to operate. And I think you start to get a better appreciation that you can't really ask them to say, switch. It doesn't work, okay? I mean, I, I'll give you a very stupid example, but if my girlfriend changes the, the order in which my spices are organized, I get crazy. <laughs> and now imagine you have 15 minutes and you see patient after patient and somebody says, nope, that's not the way you're gonna do it, even though you've done it for the last 15 years, do it this way. I mean, that, that's, you don't even know if you're doing the right thing anymore if you, somebody says that, right? So I think those kinds of changes, I, I, I don't think as technology companies, we can dictate that. Uh, I, think, I think we gotta approach that in a far more somewhat empathetic way that let's, let's not break anything. Let's slowly facilitate uh, uh, what you are doing and see if you adopt that. And once you adopt that, then I grow on top of that slowly. I think it has to be like that. I think so that's why our approach is also that let me not try and change the way practice is, but give clinicians a measure. Let them do what they do. And at the same time, if I can show, here's a measure of how the patient has really been doing at your fingertips. You don't have to do anything extra. I'll give it to you. Um, then a lot more clinicians will say, okay, um, if it's there, I'll take a look. The, uh, I'm thinking about how, to your point, even going back a little bit around the regulatory process and all the eyeballs uh, and sort of the scrutiny on 
what works and what doesn't and why. Um, it's part of healthcare for good reason, but I'm thinking, you know, the COVID epidemic has put a, a lot of emphasis uh, scrutiny yeah, um, on that. And, um, and yet all the attention has led to action and there's now questions around speed and, you know, we can go, we don't want to go down that path, but I'm thinking as you're talking, the, the mental health crisis has been a pandemic and yet um, it sounds like what you're saying, even by your approach, it's still, it's, it's methodical, it's aligned with clinicians, it's part of practice. It's not, we, you know, we need regulatory approval or we need FDA clearance for a solution. You, you know what will happen? It's the same problem. You can, you can jam through something uh, through the FDA. You can't change 300,000 psychiatrists or whatever, six, there's like 100,000 psychiatrists. You can't change them in a day. It's the same problem, like, I mean, if that were true, then every drug, the moment it got approved, will start getting prescribed. You don't need a sales force, you don't need evidence, you don't need a campaign. Well, guess what? You do. It takes five to seven years for drugs to pick up. That's the adoption cycle. It's not fast. People don't pick up. But also because all of this today is completely ad hoc. There is, if, if at the time of decision, if the evidence in an unbiased way was presented in an objective, easy to use, ingestible way to a clinician, and they didn't have to go anywhere, do anything, find another thing, but it was just there, exactly on the screen, they would do it. I'm sure they would look at it and say, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do that but we don't have that. And so what is it about, I guess, uh, you know, and I, I presume it, technology has been a big um, sort of accelerator for this and a big facilitator for the ability to do this sort of research, particularly talking about, you know, measuring larger populations, perhaps unstructured data things. But what, what is it about technology that's made this successful or made this possible now? I mean, well, okay, so, 2007, uh, I'll give you examples. Uh, 2007, if you wanted data from a health system, oh my God, I mean, the, the hoops that you had to go through. I mean, not because it's just, they didn't have it, right? I mean, if they don't have it, how the hell are they gonna give it to you? Uh, I have run studies in 2008 where the, they would basically scan ED reports and send it to us. And we had human people, uh, like, transcribers to plug it into sheets, right? Uh, because there was no way to get the data out. So I think that the, the, so to, to a large degree, I think um, the, because of the sort of the uh, somewhat of a buzz, somewhat of an awareness, somewhat of a commercialization, uh, many different factors have led the fact that now data is available at least, whether it's structured, unstructured, all over the place, that's a separate problem. It's messy, it's difficult to get it all in one place. Yes, but it's doable. That has been a huge difference. Um, you know, if you go back even two years, not two years, what NLP models used to be two years back, what NLP models four years back, I mean, the pace at which those models and the innovation of those models is going about 
uh, is just astounding, right? I mean, could we have thought that uh, there would be a translator that is actually doing it live? We could not have, and they have come. So that just tells you that how far we have come in being able to look at and make sense of unstructured data. It's still hard in the sense that medical fields have their own challenges and how you do it, again, goes back. Uh, there are something called corpus that are established for other disease areas and then you go into mental health. There, there are no words, there are no specific dictionaries that you can use, why? Because every doctor is going to look at the patient and describe the patient in their own way. They won't say specific words. So all of those are gone. So I would say in many ways, mental health, unstructured data, and how you approach the, the language processing of the notes, to what end? These are far more open-ended, but yeah. now we can do it. I mean, it takes time, but yeah. we can do it. And what takes time is the manual labor of actually looking at it and say, what does this mean? So I can learn. Uh, somebody has to say, some, some psychiatrists, a group of psychiatrists have to look at it and say, this is what this means. And they have to be properly oriented to be able to even work with data scientists. So it's a combination of those finding the right groups of people to work together at that problem, who both acknowledge this is a problem to be solved and have access to the data that is slowing things down, I would say, to a large degree. But it's happening. And not just that one other piece is being able to then put that into a system. So, so the tech side of things has now allowed us to do things that we could not do five years back. Uh, the IT teams are far more used to asks and demands of models, of processing this, taking this out, doing that. Whereas five years back, they could simply say, I don't know that, I don't care about that. That not, this is not happening. 10 years back, uh, IT teams could literally say, we're not doing this, we don't have the bandwidth, and it won't happen, right? I think that industry has moved, the perception has moved, and so the willingness and the cooperation between people has moved a lot. And I think that is what is making things happen. Have they um, built an AI which um, is powerful enough to decipher physician's handwriting yet? Doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I, and I say don't, this. Don't push it, Sam. Don't push <laughs> it. No, no, no. And I'm saying this because, you know, um, I don't write anything these days, mostly because I type everything, right? And you suddenly yeah. you ask me to go on a whiteboard and write. I can't tell what the hell I wrote. <laughs> it's my handwriting. Part of it is because I'm so not used to writing anything that. My, my hands don't have the muscle memory to clearly enunciate what I'm saying. And there is something that I just wrote. I mean, even the wall, when he writes and somebody else would be like, what is that? I'm like, oh, this is what he meant. It's only because I know what he said, not what he wrote. Okay. I mean, he might be writing function and there is an F and nothing else is there. Yeah. How just the hell is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because to him, you said it, so it's over. I think that's the challenge. Okay. Um, well, one of the um, the challenges you mentioned earlier was um, tying together 
different stages of the treatment from a, a feedback loop perspective. So once somebody is discharged or sort of handed, referred over to a, a different practitioner and those two systems don't speak, it, 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 is there an opportunity for, for, for somebody like yourselves to perhaps sit a, a layer above that and, and sort of We're already that talking about that. Okay. We're already talking about that. Uh, there's enough bureaucracy also, of course, mm. um, and we're still trying to sort that out. Uh, privacy, bureaucracy, um, who gets to see the data, what happens if they see the data. There are, there are lots of reasons why people are so gun-shy. There are consequences to a lot of things. Uh, so again, as a tech company, it's very easy to say, come on guys, share the data. But you have to put the hat on of that team as to the economics of that hospital and how that can be affected if they mm -hmm. share the data. Because there's economics involved in everything. There's ratings involved in everything. So I think this is the part that people forget, that these are all actually businesses that have to run. There's people's livelihoods at stake. And when we do things, we have to address those issues, those concerns carefully as we develop tools. Because we can't disrupt that. It just, we cannot, it, nobody will allow us. Can you say, can you say more on that? Can you, can you give an example of, obviously you don't have to attribute to a specific system or, or hospital, but what, what do you run into? What are the economics? What makes it so difficult to actually? I'll give you a different example. Uh, here in Singapore, let's say there was the question of collecting data from all public hospitals on a specific disease, specific disease. And the, the head of the department for that across five, and it's not me, it's another clinician champion who's trying to convince them to give their data. And their question was, if you collect the data and you combine the data, then you have to promise me that you're not going to compare and then publish that to the outside world because that affects everything. So you have to give me that kind of assurances of what can and cannot be done with the data before I share the data. So in the same way, you can see that if two systems where there's an outflow of in exchange of patients and they start sharing that data and they're both systems in a very close proximity. And I make, first of all, and I, and I say this with all honesty, data is not evidence. It's very, very, we have to be very careful. Data on its surface can often be misconstrued because at the end of the day, it's analyzed. How you analyze, what you assume when you analyze, all of these things significantly impact what you will get. So that's why you can totally see people's fear that if it's just analyzed in a way that does not reflect some of the reality of what goes on, and you publish that, and then people see that. There are real economic consequences to all of this. The guy who shared the data can get fired. Why will he risk his job? I guess the, the comparison one is, is, is a very interesting point, because you know, I think what, if you just compare raw data, raw on outcomes on particular facilities, what that doesn't take into account is things like the socioeconomic environment of that neighborhood or the, the facilities that they 
potentially have or the behaviors of the, the patient. So I think that so could much, lead to very- So much, yeah. exactly. You could, you could totally see that patients, the, the very severity of the patients that they see need not be the same. And if you have not really normalized that across different groups properly, not that you have not normalized, properly take into account all the necessary things that you need to with the proper method, you could get answers that you have answers, but they're not true. And that's a very difficult thing to describe and explain to people. The data is not evidence. Uh, so how, how do you go about effectively trying to remove all bias from the, 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 the answers that you're trying to get? <laughs> it's a work in progress is the best way to say it. <laughs> and honestly, and I'm saying this because with all honesty, because I think the more we do it, the more we learn. The more we learn, the more we realize what we missed out. You have to look at it many, many different ways. And, you know, there are certain things that, um, if it's a comparison of hospitals, that's really hard uh, because there's so many things that are unknown. But if it's even just a patient group and you say this patient group versus that patient group, what we typically try to do, and this is like the golden rule in all of healthcare, is that if you see something, you got to be able to take that and, and analyze that exact patient group in a completely disconnected group of data and see if the answers hold close enough. If, it's, if it holds true multiple times in disconnected data sets, then as a, and even then, then there's a higher likelihood that it's true. And I think that is the critical thing here, that that is how much we don't understand truly what goes on, that we have to be so careful. That's why we don't say things in black and white. I, I always enjoy conversations with, with scientists because the you know the, the closest you get to a, to a yes is there is a very high likelihood <laughs> nobody will ever say no that's definitely it it's just you know definites don't don't exist in, in, in because in because simply put nothing nothing is a yes or no if I said this drug works immediately you have to say what kind of patient under what circumstances what else is going on. How do they do this? Do they do that? Is this true? Is that true? <laughs> so many caveats because truly there are so many dimensions to patients that can change the outcome of that patient. If I don't take those into account, God knows what I will get. It reminds me of one of those quotes where it's like 60% um, of the time, this is effective 100% of the time. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, look at it. We are saying that the, uh, that the vaccine. Uh, you know, it's going to be, if it's, if we say it's at 75%, we are lucky. Okay. W what does that mean? That in 75%, it's not like it means that 75% of the time, if I get an infection, I'll be, it's more like 75% of the people will see effectiveness, 25% won't. Within the 75%, there's variability, but they are able to overcome it. So then, what do I say? Is it effective or is it not effective when it comes to me? Nobody knows. So do I say it's effective or do I say this virus is not effective? The vaccine is not effective. It's a, it's a, it's a, and this is where it gets to the healthcare often is so nuanced that making popular science out of it 90% of the time breaks the science.
and what we say doesn't hold true anymore. And it's a big, big challenge. How do you make it simple enough for people who are not healthcare related can look at it and understand for themselves what it means? Extremely difficult. What are the upcoming sort of advances that you can see that, that most excite you? What, what's, you know, what, what most excites you about where this, this journey could could take you, it could take medicine. I mean, I'll give you a few ones. Up until today, right, up until COVID, psychiatry visits were in person. There's a lot of overhead to that. And um, there's a lot more telehealth now. Uh, you don't, and obviously that opens up. I don't have to go half an hour to even go to the hospital. You know, I can do it from home. Obviously that creates its own problem. I need to have internet and those things, but I feel like solving internet is actually an easier problem than getting patients to access to the right doctors. Uh, also, I'm no longer limited to clinicians available in my locality. I can go anywhere. So it opens up the boundaries in a bigger way. There are lots of privacy concerns about recording a doctor-patient visit to a camera inside the consultation room. There are no cameras in a consultation room, right? But there is nothing without a camera in a telehealth situation. We know that a person's uh, overall mental state, um, the, how they're doing, how they're responding to questions, uh, their, their facial expressions, their, their overall body language, there's a lot there. And today, we just just leave it to the side. We're already talking about how we can build AI solutions to process that live inside a telehealth visit. Imagine everything that we have talked about capturing from a patient and knowing when we are talking, we're already launching a mental health related app that tells us whether they're sleeping or not, they're moving around or not, their social activity, we'll know that. They'll tell us how they're feeling. But at the end of it all, if I can now actually capture what the patient was doing in that moment, how the patient was answering, we know, I mean, I, I look at this as simply how I behave when I am sad versus how I behave when I'm stressed. My patience goes away, uh, my ability to focus goes away. And if you just saw me physically and captured me, I'm sure you would be able to quantify that. You don't have to, a patient doesn't have to say it, I will know it. That's the future. That's incredibly powerful. So it's basically, I, I, you know, uh, so data capture as it stands at the moment, it seems to be through through the, the proxy of a, a physician's notes. And you're sort of saying with, with telehealth and with the right sort of um, technology and uh, an ability to understand behavior, you can actually capture that and you won't necessarily lose the, the nuance that of the unspoken yes because I, I would presume that i don't know how uh, sort of psychiatrists take notes but you know they'll say person said this they wouldn't say person said this and paused halfway through looked up to the left um side um, exactly. was it, you know, it's, uh, okay it's 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 in it's um you can see the variability that will exist if i just told five psychiatrists to write down i'm not even saying what they observe is yeah. what they decided to write down, right? That's all I get, not what they observed. And I'm basically saying, 
that's not enough, let's observe. They are observing. Most trained psychiatrists can observe things, but what they write and what they saw, I mean, there's so much lost in translation there. Let's, let's see how these patients are really doing, how they're engaging. This is so much there we can get. And, um, and, and bear in mind, this is where technology comes in. If we didn't revolutionize computer vision, if in some ways DARPA did not spend as much money as they did on computer vision, we would not be here. Most, most of it, I mean, the beginning was DARPA, urban challenge, right? Um, yeah. I, I was in Pittsburgh and CMU was one of the contenders for the urban challenge where they would basically be able to drive a Humvee to basically be able to detect what's in front of them, left, right, understand and turn. The turning part was actually the easiest part. It's about understanding what the hell is going on. Awareness. We're using those algorithms, just to be clear. We didn't build them. And it has taken God knows how many years and how many brilliant minds to build them, right? We're building on top of all of that infrastructure that has been developed. I mean, when we're talking to psychiatrists, and this is the thing that you learn over time, is you've got to ask the right question. That's half the challenge when you're working with someone. And don't ask them, what do I need to know? That, that, that doesn't work. I've always seen that the better thing to do is to really help them under, help understand what they observe, how they observe, what do they think. Sort of try and see if you can actually, without breaking the privacy of being in the thing and observing it, observe what psychiatrists really observe. Because if you ask them a question of what can be done, what is your problem, they'll always put that hat on of what they think is possible. But a psychiatrist that you're talking to may or may not know that, that you can do in a privacy protected way, real time processing of the video data that's coming through, extract the right things and record that and not record the video. So the privacy of that patient is still maintained. I'm just recording what I need to know from that patient for that visit. Whether their pause in their speech has changed from the last time, how they speak, how quickly they speak, we can observe these things. Here's, here's a, a, a extrapolation of that idea. You mentioned recording the, the clinician. Can you apply the same technology on the clinician see their behaviors because i'm sure they'll be much yeah. more subtle but you can you can sort of you know if 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 they if they notice something and the left eyebrow always goes up you know it's like okay that was a, that was a key moment what was that so yeah yeah in fact people are trying to do that which is uh, they they don't look at only the patient they look at the yeah. conversation going on between the patient and the clinician why did the question what was what drove this question understanding the links yeah you have to, and this is where the technology comes in, right? The first question, the, the first tech challenge is, can I even process that information? When we've solved that technology question, okay, I've solved that. Now you have that. Now you go into the, okay, what is the link again? Can, can we understand the link? Can we understand in this language, what was it that drove that? Can I build that association? It's still not causality, but at least can I observe the associations? Then you start recognizing, okay, I've built it, all the associations. Which one of these are truly causal? That's the next layer of question you ask. That's how this grows. I mean, I, I will reiterate 
I think something that even Nawal and I spoke about, um, as we are writing, we're writing our vision doc and we had this conversation whether what we're writing is for two years or five years, what is valid now, what is valid long-term. And we always say that everything that we're saying and everything that we're talking about or what we are going to do to a certain degree is speculation and a directional bet. As, as I said, we don't know what we don't know. And the more we know, the more we realize what we don't know. So I think we let the, the, the signs and the people and the need drive us. And, we'll see, and we know as we go through, we learn what problems need to be fixed in what order while maintaining commercial sanity. Um, and then that's the journey. The rest we'll figure out along the path. It, it sounds like um, as much of an exploration of hypotheses as it does the development of a, of a sort of a business strategy, which fundamentally could be the same thing, but it's... It, it, it's, it, they, yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I, I don't think we say, you know, this, there, are, there are planners and there are people who don't plan. We don't plan. We have a directional idea of where we want to go and the rest, and, and all we have to do is make sure that we are aligned. And as I said, that the economics of what we're doing is still in the same ballpark, then don't plan any further because it doesn't matter. It's okay. But, but that's our way of doing things to a certain degree. And, and you have to be very comfortable knowing that you don't know. I think that's a really good place to wrap up. We will do the quick fire question round. Go for it. Um, and I'll ask, I'll ask you both. Um, so we'll start with Jodeep and then Jacob. And the first question, um, not too flippant this one, <laughs> but uh, what, is the, uh, what is the best advice that you've, you've been given? And it can be work-related, it can be, you know, what's the, what's the piece of advice that's resonated most with you? Um, be humble and learn. Uh, it drives me and many others around the, the true sense of knowing anything is knowing you don't know nothing and therein lies the humility and uh jacob as our guest host on the show you're also subject to the questions um <laughs> i don't think my answer flies in the face of joy deeps but um it might uh I, i've i've been told and i really appreciate how powerful uh, clarity of purpose is I'm not saying I have it, but I appreciate how powerful that is as a as a North Star. Next question. Um, where's the first place you will go once the COVID travel restrictions are lifted? <sighs> Bali. <laughs> That's come up a surprisingly high number of times, or maybe unsurprisingly high number of times. Um, I mean, in this part of the world, Bali is a really, really nice place to go. Not because of anything, not because of the party, not because of anything else. Mm -hmm. it's, the, the, it's just so serene, it's peaceful. And I think just the openness of it. It's actually mine and my family's literal happy place. Um, so, <laughs> You come back somewhat very rejuvenated. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing. Jacob? It, it's, it's remarkable how I, how I feel all the same feelings. My answer is Yankee Stadium, ideally with my dad to watch a baseball game. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, a little, it's a little embarrassing. No. <laughs> but I mean, re I mean, rejuvenation, 
open space, the Bronx, you know, no smell of beer. It's, you know, the crack of the bat. It's all there. Uh, if I were still living in Pittsburgh, I would have said um, Steelers Stadium. I would have um, watched the game. <laughs> Nothing that doesn't matter how freezing it is. That is something extremely exhilarating to being in that crowd and watching a game. Even if they lose, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it makes you feel alive. My brother-in-law would really appreciate that as a, as a Pittsburgh native. Excellent. Okay, next question. Um, most obscure hobby? I don't think I have any obscure hobbies, but um, you could say strange hobby. I really love military technology. So every night, uh, so if you look at my YouTube subscriptions, there are about 17 channels about the latest discovery and innovation in military, all kinds of equipment and everything. So I generally know everything about everything that's going on. My strange hobby is my commitment to continuing to donate money to the fantasy sports world. While I know that there's algorithms and bots and machines much smarter than me, yet I still make my weekly donations, um, it, it can only be counted as a strange hobby because it makes no sense. Excellent. Okay, next question. Um, what is your favorite terrible management slogan? And for an example, mine is, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> I, I, I think I have to ask my team. I, I don't have a slogan. <laughs> I, I don't think I have a slogan per se. Interestingly, but well, one, uh, one, one that you've heard, uh, I think I keep on saying, you know, you are doing something good when you have reached a point where you can do the hardest problems fast because you start with doing easy problems slow. You have to reach to a point that you're doing the hardest problems and doing them fast. That's when you know you're going to do something. I'm, no, I'm afraid no. that doesn't actually qualify as a terrible management slogan because that's actually really quite good. So <laughs> it doesn't go well. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> because you know you're talking to a team who's sort of like, "What are you talking about, man? I'm working." I think I think everyone's probably sick of hearing me say you can only control the inputs. Executive search is maddening in that regard. So I always say you can only control the inputs. And I know this isn't a management slogan, but just to sort of get something off my chest, I think we should all do away with the word synergy. I think synergy is the worst word ever. So I think if we can just agree um, that it should never be included in a slogan or a, a sales pitch or anything. I'm just thinking that I don't think our deck has the word synergy. I feel good. <laughs> you should and it doesn't i think i've read it a couple of times <laughs> okay um penultimate question um tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on uh i think most of the scientific community doesn't believe the entire experimental scientific community does not believe that biology in its craziness can still be represented with a set of equations and can be helped to understand, explain, and drive future. They'll fight it vehemently. 
mostly because they'll simply say that there is, again, too much unknown to everything for them, for having any meaning to say, what does the equation mean then? So it's a, it's a question of purpose, understanding of value, and lots of other things. I, I, I don't discount what they say, but it's a thing that I run into and I've run into most of the last 20 years. I, I feel that if physicists had applied the same logic, we wouldn't have um, anything to do with quantum physics or, uh, <laughs> or any, anything like that. So um, it's a very interesting answer. I, I, I was going to say you, you, can't, um, you can't teach perspective. I, I believe that. And I think the debate often comes in the definition of teach and learn, but you can't teach perspective. So sometimes you just have to listen. <laughs> you have to learn from people who have it, which is hard for some to realize. Interesting. That's a very profound thing to say. It might be experiential as well. The only way you can learn is to is to experience it yourself, right? So yeah. excellent. Maybe um, you, many things are like that. Like I mean, you know, like the classic thing that everyone says as a kid, like the parents say, "Don't touch the fire." Did you actually not touch the fire? I tried. One of those really quick kind of. <laughs> but we, we, we basically knew, okay, there's something risky about it. Right. But that does not mean that I don't want to know. So right. I think it's a <laughs> Believe me, I've, I've, I've burnt my hands and legs in every possible way you could potentially <laughs> do that. The one I had as, as a teen was, was don't drink too much. And that was always ignored as well. Um, so, um, okay, last question, and actually a very insightful quickfire question round. I think this is our, one of our best ones yet. Um, but the last question is, what part of the future are you most excited by? And we've had literally time travel, Starfleet Academy, all sorts of answers on this. So you can go as high concept as you like on this. Um, I think we're starting very slowly to get to a point where we have some technologies that go beyond our comprehension of what we call therapeutics today. And we have only scratched the surface of what can and cannot be done in that space. So you see the evolution, you say genetic therapy and so of that, but the evolution of that today, mm. it's really, really at its infant stages. So where that can truly go, uh, is, is really out there. And I think, I think we will see in our lifetime the whole concept of therapeutics be completely revolutionized. Do we have another 90 minutes? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm intrigued, I'm excited to see where communication goes and uh, our ability to I mean, maybe it's because I was miserable at learning another language and I always think it's pathetic that I can't communicate even with people who speak, you know, the most popular languages. But I think our ability to communicate with other human species, maybe with others, who knows? Um, I think if there's advances in communication at the pace of advances in other areas, who knows what we're capable of? Um, if we can actually understand and relate differently to each other. Yeah, that would be awesome. Be pretty cool. Tabus. And that, and that brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, Joy, it's been an absolute pleasure 
Oh, very, very insightful. Um, Jacob, thank you very much for co-hosting as well. Um, but guys, that was awesome. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. See you both. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. We will be back in two weeks' time and have some fascinating guests lined up as we continue our exploration of Southeast Asia's most exciting businesses and investors. I look forward to seeing you then. Stay safe and farewell.